Well, good morning. It's good to have you here today. If you're in Kidmo, you can head out to Kidmo. If you uh, are a guest and have a second through fifth grader, Kidmo is an environment that they have their own teaching, small groups, games, things that they do. You're welcome to walk back, see where they're going. Um, please pick them up after the service. We would really greatly appreciate that. And uh, don't go to lunch and then come back. You know, I'm just kidding. None of y'all do that. But um, it is good to have you here. And if you did not have a chance to take part in communion, you, have a, you can do that um, after I, I finish. And, or if you want to come up while I'm, I'm speaking, whatever it, it God moves you to do. I love that song. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And the reason I love that song is because so many times we are focused on our own blessings and what we are asking God to do to bless us. And yet what we have the, the privilege and the opportunity to do is to bless Him uh, and give Him the glory for all that He has done for us. That's what I want to share with you today. Um, we're going to be looking at another parable in, in just a couple of minutes. Before that, I want to share a prayer request with you. I know we have several babies that are on the way. Uh, some, not sure when they're going to get here, but... Uh, Leah is going in um, on Thursday for a C-section, so be praying for Brian and Leah, be praying, be praying for Brian uh, as a new dad, but uh, mostly be praying for Leah uh, because she's the one that's going through all of this, and so um, anyways, be in prayer for them, we're excited about that, we're excited about all the, the babies that are almost here and the babies that will be here shortly, so uh, we're thrilled just to share that part of your family with you and that you're part of our family um, as well. Last week, I shared a parable, and I kind of mixed things up because David shared the exact same parable a few weeks before, but uh, I was really super excited about it, so I decided to go ahead and do it again. Um, so those of you that were uh, gracious, I appreciate that, but the thought that we shared last week is something I want to continue today, and it is this reality that one of the reasons we pray and we worship and we bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me is, is simply because we recognize the great treasure we have through Christ. Amen? We are not people who just walk through this world eventually to die and then all life is over. But instead, we have the opportunity to walk with the Creator and to experience Him every day of our lives forever. Scripture talks about Him and Jesus Himself describes a relationship with God through Christ as the great treasure, the the pearl of great price, the thing that you would go out and give everything that you have away just so you can have this thing, this treasure, this wonderful experience and relationship with God. And one of the things that we struggle with today is truly the idea of contentment. As we've shared before, and as many of you know and have experienced perhaps yourself, anxiety is on the rise. People are worried. People are afraid. People are in despair and discouraged. Uh, there, there's just a lot of very negative things happening in the world, and the way that we deal with it, a, a lot of people struggle with that. And one of the reasons that that is growing is because our ability to be content with our lives is diminishing. Nothing's ever enough, right? We've always got to have something more, something else. I mean, I know what I have, and you know the things that I have, there was a time that I thought this was the thing that was going to bring me fulfillment and joy within my life, but then we have it for a little while, and then we realize, you know what, now I want something else. One of the things I love, and I, I could literally, if I, were, if I could do anything and get paid for it, you know, a living wage, it would be to go out and shop for cars for people because I love to shop for cars. Now, I don't make enough money 
to go do a lot of car shopping. That's why I could do it for a job. But I love to go see all of the, the bells and whistles and the gadgets and to see all the advancements in vehicles. And I, it just, for me, it fascinates me. And I, I look at these cars that you can go out and it just ages me, I, you know, because I remember when you were just glad you had air conditioning, right? And now if you don't have air conditioning, it's like, what? Why? You know, every car has air conditioning. You know, we look at all the, the gadgets and navigation and all the screens. I think Teslas are awesome. I'd love to have a big, massive computer right in my dashboard. I would never have to look at the road. It would be awesome. And yet, as I look back and I remember the cars that I began to drive, they were not fun. They were not sporty. They were transportation. <laughs> And through the years, those cars way back when, when I was a high schooler, that I drooled over and I thought, you know, if I had that car, I would be happy. Today, I wouldn't dare be caught in one of those cars, right? That's kind of how things work. We lack contentment because we always believe the thing that is going to bring us fulfillment is that thing we do not yet have. And yet what Jesus has told us, and as we looked last week through all of Scripture, there's a consistent call to this one thing that is so elusive that we even miss when we read right over it because it's such a foreign idea to us. It is that through Christ and in God, you can be content. Now, the power of contentment is incredible. Imagine what your life would be like if you didn't lust for something. Imagine what your life would be like if everything you have you really had enough. Like, you really don't even want anymore. Imagine what your life would be like if you were truly content. How could we love other people if we were content with who we were? You see, a lot of the conflict we have with other people is not based on what we think the conflict is on. The reason we have conflict with so many people is because we're afraid that they're going to take something from us. So I love you at a distance because I'm afraid if I get too close, you might call me out on something, or you might point out something that's uh, deficient within me, or maybe I'm not really good at something, and, and you might say something, so I keep you at a distance. We oftentimes will look at others critically, because if we can downplay the value of others somehow within us when we are not feeling completely open and honest with God, what, what ends up happening is we downplay others so we feel more valuable ourselves because we ourselves are not content. What would it look like within the church if we were content? I know some of you are struggling and you're struggling financially and you're struggling to figure out what to do. And I, I can tell you this, at any amount of salary, you can struggle financially. No matter how much you make. There are people that are driving the nicest cars on the road, living in the largest mansions in the best locations in the world, and they, if they had to pay all their bills, would be absolutely destitute in the moment. You can live a life content, or you can live a life believing that it's never enough. And I will tell you, it is a frustrating and a despairing place to believe that you're living an existence where it will never be enough. And yet Jesus is constantly saying to you, you are enough. I am enough. You can be holy and perfectly content. So I, I think that's one of the things we lost in the garden with Adam and Eve. They were totally content. They didn't have the greatest clothes because they didn't have any clothes. 
They didn't have the greatest cars. They didn't have any cars. They didn't have the biggest house. They didn't have any houses. They, I mean, they had the best career possible. They got to take care of God's creation, newly formed. Nobody was eating anybody yet, so everything, everybody felt okay. They were content. Until they weren't. And the moment in which their contentment died was the moment that a serpent slithered down in and said, Oh, everything is so great. Except you could have more. If you just eat of this tree that God said not to eat of, then you will have everything that not only you have now, but you'll also have everything that God has. And in that moment, in the heart of Adam and Eve, their contentment died and their need for more encroached upon them. And since then, we have suffered the effects of that throughout all of human history. Our sins, as we look at them, are a a desire to compensate for something we don't have. Our our addictions and the things that we go after that are unhealthy in our lives are an attempt to compensate for something we don't have. And what Jesus is offering over and over again to you is right where you are. You are enough, and He is enough. He even goes on to battle in our minds some of the things that we are so certain that we will not have enough of, and that's food, shelter, clothing and he says i i care even for the lilies of the field how much more will i care for you and give you what you need and yet we reject the joy of receiving what we need because we are so focused on what we don't have the parable that i want to go through with you today is found in luke chapter 18 it's actually a grouping of parables well, although we're only going to do one i want to come back to the other one before jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem, and as he passes through these other places, he's teaching as he sees and as he goes and is trying to show people what does it look like to truly know him and to know God, and how does it, you know, what does it look like to be content, and interestingly enough, um, the parable before this is the one entitled, in most of your Bibles, The Persistent Widow. Now, we're going to come back to that one because that one can stand on its own, and we, I want to talk to you about the being persistent in a time where persistence doesn't feel like it pays off. But we'll come back to the persistent widow another day. Today I want to talk to you about this terrible parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector because it will throw most of what you know about coming to church and about following God under the bus and you will find yourself wondering, oh, am I even a Christian when I read something like this? If you look at Luke chapter 18, we're going to begin the first nine. And as we read this, I want you to understand there are many ways in which in our discontentment we attempt to have control or power over the world and at least over our own lives. We, we want to be in charge of what's happening in our lives. And for many of us, a lot of our anxiety comes in when we do not feel in control. So we will do everything we can to orchestrate our lives so that we can be in control. That has to do with our relationships, the ways that we Uh, We we go after our jobs, how we perform our jobs. It even enters into the church where we want to be the center of everything. And God says, if you will leave me at the center, everything else works itself out the way it's supposed to. God works all things towards good. Let's begin in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. If you want to follow along on version, you can. Uh, My notes are there. There's some links to some ways that you can get involved at Journey if you would like. 
It says in verse 9, He, Jesus, also told this parable, immediately following the parable of the persistent widow, to some who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, this parable is a little different than others because Jesus, right up front, as he tells the parable, tells what it means before he even gives the parable. So right now, we could stop and go, okay, I get it. But what Jesus does is illustrate the point that he's seeing over and over and over again in the church all around him. Let me start over. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I want you to keep in mind that in the, the journey to Jerusalem, there was a lot of trading Especially as people got closer to Jerusalem, there was a lot of bartering. There was a lot of currency exchange. In fact, when we read about Jesus overturning the, the tables of the money changers in the temple, a lot of that were people that were traveling to the holy city, and they were coming with all kinds of different currencies. While if you go anywhere in the United States, you should be able to pay with a U.S. dollar. It was not the case in this part of the world at this time. And instead, all of these little municipalities had their own currencies. And so when you'd go into a big city, you would have to go find somebody that would exchange your currency for the prevailing currency of the, time, of the, of the city. And as you got closer into the city, there were more and more of these exchanges happening. And everywhere that you exchange currency, what can you guess there also was? A tax. And therefore, a tax collector. So as we read this parable, we're not just talking about, oh, this random guy that happened to be a tax collector comes in. But instead, we're talking about an an area that that you're going to see tax collectors everywhere. So as Jesus is telling this story, he's not just saying, yeah, there was this random tax collector. He's talking about a group of people. They would have been used to seeing tax collectors coming into the temple. And yet what they assumed about the tax collector was incorrect because this is the story that he tells. It says in verse 11, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. They felt the exact same way about them that you do today about tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this story, we have this interesting exchange between these two imaginary people, and yet Jesus is trying to communicate what he has seen time and time again, place and place again, especially with those who were fluent in the law. See, much of our existence as we see it through the Old Testament was about us trying to be made right with God after we were pushed out of the garden due to the first sin of Adam and Eve. All of the rest that we see in Scripture is about God bringing us back into a place where we can be made righteous and we can be in a relationship with Him forever. As we look in the Old Testament, that came in as the law. And what 
God did through the law was to show you that if you want to be righteous, you will fail. It was a terrible exercise for thousands of years that they had to learn over and over and over again that righteousness was so over our ability to fulfill that we were going to need someone to intercede for us. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. And as we get to this point of their history, the purveyors of the law that were the experts at the law were the Pharisees, and they had twisted this thing that was supposed to demonstrate their need for Christ. They had twisted it into the self-righteousness that said, I do this better than you. Have you ever known anybody like that? Is it that? Aren't they fun to be around? You ever have somebody you go to work and they want you to know that they're better at their job than you are at your job? Do you, aren't they, don't you just love to be around them? You just love them. It just naturally comes out. You smile when you see them coming down the hall and you think, oh, we should go do lunch together, don't you? Does that happen for you all in the room? There's nervous laughter. Those of you who have stoic faces are saying, I'm not admitting that I have no somebody just like that. They drive me nuts. And yet, this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They wanted everyone to know, and as we, we read, and Jesus is really hard on the Pharisees, he says they even dress themselves in a way that we'll look at them and think they are so righteous and spiritual and holy. And the Pharisees used that to control a people that believed ultimately that the law was their salvation. And into this environment enters Jesus who says, I am enough for you. And you are enough. Luke 18, 9, if we go back to the very first verse of this parable, he told this parable who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. There's a few things I want you to get from this. As we look at righteousness and we look at what Jesus is saying, understand this, righteousness is the goal of repentance. Righteousness is is the goal of repentance. And the reason that it is the goal of repentance is because this is what restores our relationship with God. Now, for our apologists in the room, I recognize, and you would be right to say, well, Jesus is how we restore our relationship with God. Absolutely. But the way that we identify with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection is we identify through repentance. If we go back and look at the spread of the gospel in the New Testament, even from the lips of Jesus himself, the beginning of the message of the gospel had nothing to do with heaven. It was repent. As I mentioned to you before, if we look at the letters, the vision of John in the book of Revelation, as he is getting these letters from Christ that he is to send out to the churches, five of the seven letters, the primary message of those letters was this, repent. Repentance is so tied into the gospel that we cannot live a life following Christ unless it is a central part of our identity of repentance. And what we see in this scenario are two men in the church praying to God and yet very different hearts in which they were doing it. This righteousness that we seek, I don't know about you, but I'm not real good at it. Is anyone here good at that? If anyone raises their hand, I'm calling you up to finish the sermon, all right? Because if you're good at it, you need to come up here and tell us about it. 
The truth is most of us would say we're not really good at righteousness. In fact, many of us will spend a good deal of our lives trying to cover up the fact that how bad we're at it. I don't want you to know what I've done. I don't want you to know my background. We've had some great friends through the years at Journey, and many of those have come in saying, you know, if I walk into a church, uh, the roof's going to fall in. That's, well, it, we don't really want it to fall. We've seen what happened across the uh, sidewalk here. But I get your point. I get your point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's not go literal. These are allegories, so don't go literal. But the reality is there are a lot of people that believe that the unrighteousness within their life is so terrible that God cannot love them nor forgive them. And so they hide in their sense of devaluing themselves in a hope that if they devalue themselves enough, they will have atoned for their sin. It is a terrible place to be in your life because there is no atonement of sin in the devaluing of ourselves. There is only atonement of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. And yet we have come to a place in our nation and in our world in which we believe somewhere deep down inside, if I really feel bad about myself, everything's going to be okay. That is not the message of the gospel. So one of the things that Jesus tells us over and over again is how much we are loved, how much we are valued, and what links he will go to know us and so that we will know him. There is no sin that will keep you from knowing God. That is one of the greatest opportunities we have in knowing him is that no matter what your background is no matter what your past is no matter what stories people that you hope you'll never see again have on you they are not enough to keep you from christ but we come across verses like first peter 1 6 that say you shall be holy for i am holy and we look in the mirror and we say are you kidding me Can we lower the standard? And this is quite honestly why we compare ourselves, because in this parable, there are a number of things we can draw into. One of them is our easy willingness to compare ourselves to others. Don't we do that? We compare ourselves to others all the time. We compare ourselves to others' success. We compare ourselves to others' looks. We compare ourselves to others' abilities. We compare ourselves all the time. And in this parable, we see... One individual who is pouring his heart out, just saying, I am a sinner. I know I have done terrible things. I need to be forgiven. And another one saying, oh, (laughs) I've got it covered. I am glad I'm not like you. I'm doing everything right. We compare ourselves all the time. Sometimes we look at others and we say, well, I know he says that we're supposed to be holy like he's holy, but I see all these other Christians and I know what they're doing, so I am okay. I am better than them, which is not found anywhere in Scripture, by the way. As long as you're better than any of the five people closest to you in your proximity, God says you are okay. That is never found in Scripture anywhere. Comparison never helps. Comparison never works. Comparison never makes a person feel better for themselves in the long haul. It makes them feel better uh, about themselves in the very short term because inwardly what they're saying when they compare themselves to others is, I am not enough. 
I desperately must find someone else that I am better than so I feel better about myself. That is what comparison does all the time, even if we convince ourselves otherwise. Comparison never works. This call to be holy, this call to righteousness, the which is the goal of repentance because it restores our relationship with God. The Pharisees, like many of us today, because even though we don't have the office of Pharisee, many of us have the, I'd say us in general. I'm not picking you out like I've got some of you nailed as Pharisees. We're going to put a big, you know, red P on you that you've got to wear when you come into church so we can know, identify who you are. But Pharisees, like many of us, believed in their effort to keep the law. I can do this good enough. Now, some of you are here because you have been in places with other Christians and they let you know you are not doing it good enough, right? Some of us have been in churches where others have kind of looked down at their nose at us and said, you need to do better. You need to clean yourself up. And the problem with the message of you need to clean yourself up is we never fully feel clean unless we have Christ within us. That's the only way to be clean. And yet somewhere in the church we have said, if you do all the right things, then you will be good. And some of us have even wrapped that into the gospel, and I've been guilty of this in my own life, where if you will just accept Christ, everything will be fine. And while on the super big picture that may be the case, on day-to-day life that does not feel like it's true. Because sometimes things aren't fine. And when we tell you that if you will just love Jesus, everything will be okay, when things aren't okay, we begin to question whether or not Jesus loves us. And yet what we find in the, throughout the Old and New Testament is God regularly demonstrates his love by bringing us difficulty. So this is a terrible lie that we hear within our culture that says, if you love Jesus, and if Jesus loves you, everything is going to be okay because... The truth is Jesus does love you, and because of that, everything will not be okay. Because you see, when things are not okay are the times that we say, Jesus, I need you, and that is what brings us back into his presence, and that's what brings us back into wholeness and contentment. So why in the world would Jesus keep that from us? Why would he make all difficulties vanish if that is one of the very conduits that brings us into his presence. It's a confusing thing, and it's hard to sometimes understand, and it is one of the reasons that Jesus, when he described parables, said, for those who have ears to hear and those who have eyes to see, let them see and hear. This is why so many people don't see or hear, is because it doesn't always seem like it makes sense. But in fact, God's love for us is so overwhelming that he knows we cannot keep the law, and yet there's still something in us, no matter what all of Scripture says, that believes we can too. Somehow I can do it. I can be good enough. That's one of the reasons that people within the church who have taken on this Pharisee mindset that says, I can keep the law better than you, and therefore you need to get your life together. The reason they do that is the same reason we compare for any other area of our life. I, am, I know I fail at it, but if I compare myself to you, who clearly is failing more, I feel better about myself. And yet still within in them is this voice saying, you are not enough. Jesus is not enough for you. This is why it happens. 
Same reason that the person compares themselves to you in the way that you dress. I don't have many people who look at me in envy in the way that I dress. I'll be quite honest. And I haven't for a long time, really most of my life. At one time, years ago, we had a, a, we had a staff and leader intervention here at Journey that approached me and told me I need to dress better. Now, most of them are not here because I got rid of them. But, <laughs> not really, not really. They still just didn't like my clothes. But anyways, I, there are apparently rules when there comes to plaids. I didn't know this. Some of you know this. There are apparently rules that come with plaids and mixing plaids and tops and bottoms with plaids. And I mean, a plaid should go with a plaid. When I grew up in the time of Garanimals, amen? Garanimals says that if two things have the same color tag, they go together no matter what. Do you all know what Garanimals is? Okay, anyone under about 40 has no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. Look it up, Google it, and it will tell you all you need to know. For me, plaids are like garanimals. If it's a plaid, they go together. Apparently not true. I have nobody that looks at me and compares themselves with me in the way that I dress. Nobody goes, you know who, I, you, know who you need to dress like? You need to dress like Pastor Mark. No one has ever said that ever about anyone, and never will they ever say that about anyone. The truth is that our need to compare is killing us. The truth is that our need to be able to do everything and look better on our own is destroying us. In the church, the the belief that I don't need God is prevalent, even though we will sing, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. We will sing that and walk out under our own power saying, I've got this. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't have it. But I do, if you will trust me. And so these two men in the temple together, one understood this, one did not. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Pharisees, like many of us, believed in their effort to keep the law. And quite honestly, this is the difference between intentions and reality. We like to believe our intentions are good enough, right? I intended to clean up the house. I didn't. Deidre got home. My intentions didn't matter when she saw that I hadn't cleaned up the house, right? You all have that problem in your house? She's pretty easy on me, but not always. (laughs) Intentions don't equal reality. And yet, in this area of our faith, we like to think my intention to be holy, my intention to follow Jesus, my intention to trust in Him is good enough, and it's not. Jesus never said, all who intended to follow me will be saved. Never said that. But in our minds, I intended to do this thing. It's killing us killing us in the church, this idea that I can do this on my own. If I just try harder, if I just try better, I can do this. This is where we have failed since the garden. This is what our enemy, Satan, is doing every day is to try to shovel this into your mind so that you believe you can do this on your own. This is why marketing messages that say, listen, it's all about you are so successful because deep down inside, every one of us wants to believe this is true. Every one of us wants to believe this is true. Jesus says, but that is the answer for discontent. You'll never be content putting yourself in the middle. 
You'll never be content being the center of your own desires. It never works, and yet we have tried for millennia to make it work, and it never does. If we just get, do something a little different or just make a little more money, if we just get a, be a little more successful, then I'll be okay. And he says, no, that is the recipe for disaster and despair and discouragement in your life. That is not the answer to contentment. And so we have to come to the place where we decide we are going to do something different. As we read through the teachings of Jesus, Jesus does not mince words here. We like the cute stories of Jesus. Bring all the little children to sit on my lap and I'll bounce them on my lap. And this is who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. We love those stories. But when we have two men in the church praying to God, calling out for salvation, and him saying, one of them will not leave here justified. Now, what does that mean, justified? Justified is that big, long Christian word, justification, that is necessary to be forgiven of your sins. Justified means that through the blood of Jesus, you have received forgiveness for your sins. You are justified before God. He's saying this man in the church, praying, tithing, doing all these acts of service that he's supposed to do is not justified. That is a scary teaching of Jesus. Because that means we can spend all our free time in the church and completely miss it. These are why the secret teachings of Jesus are hard. The teachings of Jesus, you know, they are not for the faint of heart. They are, I know, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. That's not what I really mean. What I mean is it is not for those who are not serious about this. One of the things that we struggle with in the church, and this is, this is another hard reality, is that the way to Christ is narrow. And the way to destruction is broad. The way to Christ is narrow, and few will find it. Do you know I spent the first half of my ministry, I've been in ministry, I can't remember how long now, like 25, 30 years. That's been a good first half of the ministry. And this is what you'll find in many of the church industry, discipleship training things and things trying to help you grow your church. I spent the first half of my ministry trying to pry that narrow gate into the wide gate. If we just make this easier, if we're just less offensive, we just have better programs. We have cooler artwork and better motion stuff behind the words. If we do better songs, you know, if we go out and we have more effective outreaches in the community, if we take the gospel and we really put it in, in, in today's terms better, if we can illustrate it with a movie, if we can just make things easy, this is exactly where we got the idea that parables were supposed to make it easier for people to understand the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus said, oh, no, no, I'm making it harder for you to understand my teaching. So only the really serious ones get it. It's because we are trying so hard to pry that narrow gate open, that we are not able to do that. We cannot pry that narrow gate. The narrow gate is what it is. And this has been the problem in the church ever since the church was established as the tabernacle. Those that go through the motions but do not have a heart that is ripped to shreds in repentance. This is why we're struggling with many of the things 
in the church today, why so many walk away from the church, why so many churches are struggling, it is because we have forgotten what it really looks like to follow Jesus and to be content. Why is it that in Acts 1 and 2 we read about the church spending time together in each other's house and teaching each other and eating with each other, sharing communion with each other? Why is it that we read about that and people are watching and they're coming in droves to follow Christ? And yet today, it's, you know, in, in, in this country, to be a Christian is, is becoming increasingly, you're just, you just don't have it together. You just can't live life on your own. What, what are they not seeing in the church today that they saw back then? Now, it's easy to say, oh, they did it all right back then, but then we do remember in Revelation that most of the letters, the churches were already beginning to turn away from their first love. And Jesus, through John, was calling them back to repentance. Come back to the thing that brings you true life. Repentance is the painful recognition that we cannot keep the law without the cross. And it is painful. Repentance is supposed to be painful. And when we read this parable, it's not hard to see this tax collector who is by himself quietly will not even approach or lift his head towards God, just recognizing the pain of his sin, the the evil that's going on within his heart, and just asking God, crying out with a broken spirit, just forgive me, I'm a sinner. It's meant to be painful, and yet you are are driven and taught your entire life to avoid pain. And yet Jesus says, enter into pain and you will be brought free. Now, I don't mean go hurt yourselves, all right? No, go hurt yourselves. Well, I don't really feel broken inside, so I'm going to go break my arm. Don't do that. There have been people who have done that and felt there was some spirituality in physical pain. And what Jesus is saying is, no, this is internal. This is your heart. This is not what you do to yourself physically. And though this is one way that, that people, especially some young people, deal with anxiety today is they go hurt themselves physically to take their mind off their anxiety. And what Jesus is saying is you're missing the point. Tear up what's inside your heart. Tear it to shreds and repentance so that I can rebuild it and make it whole. So why is it that we so often miss this? We see a picture of repentance throughout Scripture, but in Joel chapter 2 it says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, talking about the nation of Israel, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster see there was it was common at this time as a sign of mourning and grief to rip your clothes and to walk through with your clothes ripped that demonstrated grief and mourning and so there are those that would approach god without any desire of true brokenness inside ripping their clothes for the appearance of mourning and what that what the the prophet joel is saying here is approach god not with ripped garments but with a ripped heart that's some strong imagery Some strong imagery of approaching him with humility, approaching him with a broken spirit, approaching him not with our strength, but with our weakness. Psalm 51, 17, 
David is repentant over what he has done with Bathsheba and in the murder of her husband. And he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, the difference between these two men, the difference that we see in the nation of Israel, the difference that we struggle with today is the difference in putting on a good show and our hearts truly knowing Christ. The good show fails all the time. The problem with the good show is everyone else thinks you're okay and they never rush to your aid. Repentant people know that the deadly consequences of sin far outweigh the comfort of self-righteousness. See, there is a comfort in knowing I can do it on my own. There's a comfort in knowing that I'm all right. There's a comfort in believing that, you know what, I got this covered. There's, there's comfort in that. And yet a person who is repentant knows my sin is so damaging. It is so evil that I need to deal with it. And I deal, need to deal with it right now. They don't rush to sin. They don't rationalize their sin. They don't say, you know what, I know this is sin, but I just, this is, you know, I like it too much. They recognize that that thing, that liar, the enemy is telling you, this is okay. And it's destroying you, leading to discouragement, despair, and depression. Because there's a disconnect in your spirit. Let me leave you, if I leave you with four things, one is this. I want you to, to know in this, this journey of repentance, number one, we have an enemy, an enemy that is focused on us dying in our sins. You need to know that. We are convinced today that the enemy is silent and non-existent. But he is spending every day trying to cause us to die in our sins. In Revelation, this is what we hear about Satan. It's called the great dragon says in, in chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He's talking about you. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The goal of our enemy is our discouragement, our despair, and our destruction. And, and, and from many vantage points, he's being successful in many lives. This is his goal. If you think, ah, I'm okay, not a big deal, I got this Satan thing covered, Revelation 12, 17 says, then the dragon became furious with the woman. This is, there's a an allegory of a woman and a dragon. There's a lot of different agreement of what the, who the woman is, but talking about Satan, that the dragon went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So literally, he's come to wage war against you. But his war is not the kind that hits you in your face where that 
It brings suffering to you. It's the kind of war that comes and lulls you into a false sense of security and joy to which you don't even look for anything else because I'm so content in this and in that way he wins. See, repentance doesn't become content in their sin. Repentance becomes content in Christ. There's a big difference. Repentance is our defense against our enemy. Second thing is this. This is, I think, is so crucial, and I think that many, I think we, we try to, to not only share this, but many of you live this out, and you are sharing this outside with people at work and with people in your families and people that you come in contact with. No one is beyond God's willingness to forgive. No one. There is not a sin that keeps a person from being able to experience the forgiveness of God. Now, again, our apologists in the room will say, oh, yes, but there is a sin. Well, it is the rejection of the Holy Spirit, which is, in essence, the sin means I just could care less about God. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a sin. And there's no coming back for that because, well, you don't care anything about God. It's, I mean, the enemy's won. That's his end goal. Whether you say he doesn't exist or whether you say he does exist and I don't care, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is leading us into these things all the time. I reject it. But every other sin, anything can be forgiven. Because a person who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never repent nor ask for forgiveness. That's why it's unforgivable. It's amazing how many people, if they just knew, I know your past, I know your struggles. And I still love you regardless. How many people could find freedom in Christ simply by finding a believer that said, I love you anyways, and so does Jesus? There's not a sin that keeps you from that. Third thing is this, repentance is not about feeling bad about yourself. (laughs) This is a common misconception about repentance. It's not just feeling bad. I feel bad about stuff that I continue to do, right? Oh, you all don't do that. You all don't do that. I heard somebody gasp. I heard that. Yeah, I do. I do it. I'll feel bad about it, and I'll still do it. In fact, Emma made some brownies at the house. I'm not supposed to be eating sugar. I will eat one before I go home. I'm going to feel bad about it, but I'm going to eat it. And that's an easy, and that's an easy example. <laughs> you know, that's an, easy, that's an example I'm willing to share with you, right? It's not about feeling bad about yourself, but recognizing the deadly effects of sin and turning away from them. Changing course. This is one of the reasons that reading Scripture is so crucial. And I just still am so proud of our students and leaders. And many of you adults have gotten in on this. And I've been able to see some of the reading plans that you're doing. And um, I just how faithful you are in reading Scripture. It's one of the reasons we read Scripture, by the way, is so that we know what we need to turn from. Because it's, it's silly to think that we all recognize all sin in our lives. In fact, if you're not sure what you need to repent from, here's a quick, easy prayer. God, show me what I need to repent from. And guess what? He'll do it. Now, I'll tell you, you've got really, to be really willing to hear it, to hear it. But if you, if you pray and you say, God, help me to know what I need to be forgiven for, I'm going to guarantee you, if you have a willing heart, they will begin to be like, okay, I got, I got it. I got it. Enough. We'll do this again later. I got enough on my plate. 
He will do it. You, don't feel, you shouldn't feel bad that you don't recognize all the sin in your life. This is the difference in knowing Christ and not. This is the having eyes to see and the ears to hear. This is it. This is what the Holy Spirit does within you. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you. This is why Jesus says, I got to go because a helper's coming that's better than me that's going to help you. And this is one of the ways that he helps us. It's not about feeling bad about yourself, but recognizing the deadly effects of sin, turning away from them. There's a, I was going to read the story, but I don't have time. The story I grew up with, and some of you may have grown up with it too. You don't hear it very often, I think, because it's just a little too close to the truth for us to, to really want to hold to. It's by Hans Christian Andersen called The Emperor's New Clothes. Y'all remember that story? I'm going to read the story. It's a really long story. But here's the gist of the story for those of you who don't know. If you don't know, you need to go look it up and you need to go read it later because it is so applicable to today. There's a king. And rather than doing the jobs of a king, this is not, I'm not quoting it, I'm just giving you the gist of it. Instead of doing the jobs of the king and overlooking his nation and defending his nation and preparing his troops and doing all the things that a king is supposed to do, he was enamored with his clothes. In fact, he had a new type of clothes for every type of engagement, and people knew that when the king showed up, he was going to be dressed well. There were two called swindlers. They were named swindlers. They were weavers that came into the city, and they convinced the emperor that they could weave a a fine garment so fine that only those who were intelligent and those who were the smartest in the kingdom could actually see them. No one else would even be able to see them. The stupid and the dumb would never see these fine clothes that they would wear. They were finer than silk. They They were finer than a spider's web, and they would weave them that you almost couldn't even feel that you were wearing them. And so the king was enamored with this, and he said to himself, I can better rule my nation if I have these clothes, and those who can't see them should not have a post in my kingdom. And so he commissioned these weavers to go and to weave these garments, and they began to weave them. And they sent, he sent his emissaries to go check out their work, and yet none of them could see the clothes. As they brought them out piece by piece, no one could see them. So the king himself came to see the clothes that he was so proud of, and he was astonished to find that he couldn't see them either. But he didn't want to admit that to anybody, because to admit that to somebody would admit that he was dumb himself and not sophisticated enough to see these fine new clothes that these weavers had created. Long story short, the king has a parade and he decides to put on these new clothes that these swindler weavers had created for him. And he strips down into when he's wearing nothing and he puts on each garment. The weavers hand them one by one, the pants, the shirt, the mantle, the every piece, and he puts them on, never being able to see them. And he goes in this parade and everyone is shocked when they see him and yet the word has gone out. Those who cannot see the clothes are not sophisticated, nor are they smart. And so everyone kept their mouth shut except for one child who looked up and said, Ah, the emperor's not wearing any clothes! And so then a few people began to pipe in, Ah, he's not wearing any clothes. The ending of the story of the emperor's new clothes says this, 
but he hasn't got anything on, the whole town cried out at last. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right, but he thought this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. See, many of us are living our lives just like the emperor's new clothes. We have a false sense of self-security and self-righteousness that is meaningless and yet brings us some type of security because we can compare ourselves to others and say, I'm better than you. And yet what Jesus is saying over and over again is you have to go against the grain of common culture that says strength is what brings you joy and contentment and what ushers you into the presence of God. It is weakness, humbleness, a broken and contrite spirit. And so some of us, like the emperor, are walking around in our new clothes, feeling confident about ourselves. I'm going to church, I'm tithing, I'm serving, and yet our hearts are hard towards him. Because repentance isn't about feeling bad about ourselves, but recognizing the deadly effects of sinning and turning away from them. Let me share this with you too. And this is what I so firmly believe about the church today. I firmly believe about the church tomorrow. And I believe this is what it looks like for us to be the church. And that is, we need each other. You know, there's a lot of people that will say Christians shouldn't judge. I'm going to tell you something. We are not to judge anyone outside the church. Scripture is very clear on this. If there's someone who's not a believer, you have no right to judge them. That is God's right and God's alone. But within the church, we are to judge each other. Over and over again, we are to judge each other. In fact, there are whole passages of, of, in every part of the New Testament that say we need to judge each other. We, we want to deny that simply because judgment feels so bad. And the reason it feels bad is because we are trying so hard to do it ourselves. And when someone says, but you're not doing it good enough, we get really angry but I'm trying so hard. That is not the point. See, when we understand how deadly sin is and we see someone stumbling into it, we see it and we are alarmed because we don't want them stumbling into that deadly sin and we want them to know so that they can repent and be saved. And yet because we are still under the delusion of self-righteousness, We reject it. Don't criticize me. Don't judge me. And yet, those who are wise say, yes, I need to be judged. This is why community is so important. This is why family is so important. This is why you are important to be here every single week. So I'll work that in there. (laughs) This is one thing that if Deidre and I could communicate something to new people who come into the church, this is what it would be. You don't come to church in order to get something you come to church in order to give something and you do not know who is here that needs you or needed you this morning or will need you next week see we are in this cultural consumer mindset that says i come to church for what i'm going to get what are they serving up for me today worship I'll give it a solid B-plus sermon. Probably should work harder next week, you know. And I get it. And I've been in that position. And man, I have a good grading scale. 
But the truth is that the body of Christ is meant that we are to rely on each other. This is exactly what we see in Acts 1 of 2. Acts 1 and 2. That's what we see is these lives mingling together, living life together, helping each other, being a part of each other. And we are, I, I am so committed to this that I want you to be here every single week, even when the sermon is subpar, because here's the, here's the truth. You don't know what you're going to receive, and you don't know what you're going to give to someone else who desperately needs it. And the reality is you have something going on every other moment of your life. You are busy in all these other arenas, giving it your attention and giving it your time. And yet this is a time, even when you come, and some days you're going to come in here and you're going to be like, man, this is what I needed. And some days you're going to come in and go, well, I don't, I don't know if this is what I needed today. And yet someone else needs you. They need to talk to you out here or in here. They need to sit next to you. They need just that smile on your face. They need to be welcomed and loved. They need somebody to be a part of. This is also why small groups are so crucial. Because in here, you're all looking at me. You're not looking at each other. You don't even know what each other's doing. Do you even know how many people have picked their nose since I started talking just a few minutes ago? You have no idea. But in small group, you know what's going on. That's why you don't pick your nose in small group, by the way. It's a good tip for you. I want to encourage you, small groups are going to be starting here in the next few weeks for the fall. And I, ask, I want to ask you to commit to those, but I'm going to do something a little different this, this year. I, I've, I've at times even begged people to be in small groups because I just believe that that small group of people, there is life and there is growth, and that is what the church really is at its best. I'm not going to beg people to be in small groups because here's the truth. Many times in small groups, what ends up happening is we start strong and by the end of the semester, like two people are there. And do you know who, who misses out? Not you, because you didn't want to come. But everybody else who needs you as that part of their family. So I'm going to ask you to commit to a small group and I want to ask you to show up every time your small group meets, which is, for most of them, at best, once a week. I know things will happen. People get sick. People have things that come up or events they have to go to. You know, those things happen. But there are days that you're going to say, you know what, I want to sleep in. I just don't want to go or it's at the end of work. You know what? I've had a long day at work. I just don't have anything left. I'm just going to go home. And you will go home and you will watch TV and you will do whatever you're going to do and you will get up the next morning. Nothing will have changed from the time you left work to the time you go back to work the next morning. But in small group, if you commit and get there, there's a chance that something's going to change. And I guarantee you this Holy Spirit is going to be there among you because he says he will. So I want to ask you to commit to small groups. For those of you, we've, we have more people that are interested in leading a small group this semester than, than we, we ever have. But we also have some small group leaders that, for whatever reason, mostly babies, are not going to be leading small groups this semester. So we're going to look a little different this, this semester. If you're interested in hosting or leading a group, I want to talk to you. 
You can either go online and you can communicate with me there or you can grab me by the shoulder and within the next week, week and a half, I'm going to be asking you to come talk with me and we're going to sit down and talk about what a small group look like for this next semester. This, it, it, we want it to be a place where we are family and we are communicating with each other. We need each other. Everything in your life says go to your separate corners. Show up for church every now and again, but then go to your separate corners. That is a recipe for death in the body of Christ. We need each other. And I say all that because my last thing I want to share about this parable is that, and this is, this is harsh, I know, but you can attend church and miss the point. You can attend church every single day and miss the point. That's exactly what the Pharisee did. This is what Paul was scared to death of. I beat my body in submission because I'm scared to death that after preaching this gospel, I myself will not be a part of it. You can attend church every day and miss the point. This is a harsh teaching. This is hard to grasp, and it's one of the reasons that we read these and we try to take the low-lying fruit because if we really dive down into what Jesus is saying, it cuts and pierces us to the quick, and that doesn't feel good. But I want to encourage you. You don't have to be like the emperor going around living their life like everybody else, pretending that you got it all together. You can't actually have it all together with Christ. It doesn't look like your own self-righteousness or your own effort. It looks like submission, humility, brokenness, and repentance. So I want to encourage you. We're going to sing one more song. If you'd like to come up and pray, you can do that. I want to encourage you that God is at work. In your brokenness, He will not leave you. He will take those pieces and mend them and make them into something beautiful. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that has set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run with him towards him. And recognize what God is truly offering those who are broken before him. New life being restored in an eternity with him. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. For we are all sinners. We recognize our own brokenness. And sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we reject it. We deny it. And yet it is there. I pray for our church as we enter into a new season. Lord, that you would not only be in and among us, that you would bring us closer together, closer to what you intended for the body of Christ in this world. I pray that you would bring healing to those who are broken today. They are in a season of brokenness, recognizing their failures, crying out for forgiveness. And God, I pray that you will, you will show them the rich, abounding love that you have for them and that you will restore them to the person you are calling them to be. I pray for those in this room and they have stoically carried the mantle of Christian their entire life, doing the things they're supposed to do, but yet feeling dead and empty inside. I pray that today would be the day that that facade would crumble. 
Their hearts would be rent. And in repentance would cry out to you, turning towards you and away from their sin. Father, I pray for those in this room and they are stuck in whatever pet sin that feels good and comfortable and cozy. They can escape the world and they can just, you know what, stay right in there and it is destroying their souls. I pray that they would have eyes to see just as you see the corruption that that sin is bringing into their life, that it is actually pulling them away from joy, away from life, away from fullness with you. I pray that we as a church would demonstrate what it means to be holy and what it means to love others. That we would not be so busy about the law that we forget our true calling is to love you and to love others. Father, help us to be like this tax collector. Heal us, work in us, let us see you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.